0: Joel, can we talk about the mysticism? Can we talk about the ideas? Because this yeah. stuff is absolutely fascinating. But his worldview, his idea about creation, how we ended up where we are, where we're all going, this whole story of the world. And uh, yeah. But
1: why was it so objectionable? <laughs> it's, it, it's, uh, it's challenging to put it all together. The KG, uh, is one of our primary sources, but not the only one, but l- let's, for this conversation, stick close to the KG because it's, um, going to be re- readily accessible once, once, uh, it appears sometime next year or, or shortly thereafter. And it, it can actually be read in, uh, the translation by Ilaria Romelli. Uh, she's written a, a, a sound translation of the S2 version of the KG that is, is worth consulting. The, um, Origin of things is, I would say, classical origin, originism. That is, there are no ways or first beings. Evagoras seems to prefer this term first beings and second, uh, second beings. And he isn't very clear on what he means by these, but he uses them to, to tell the story that basically they, they grew bored, satiated with, with God, and drifted away. And it grew into a kind of gray-dated chilling, Uh, and God recognizing this accommodated the different degrees of fallenness by providing bodies suited to each group's different state of fallenness. So the angels got some some well, they weren't the they were (laughs) they were less fallen, I suppose. Um, their angelic states demonic states and human states being being between them and evagris has a a whole physics worked out built into this that he brings out in the kg but doesn't explain to the depth that we would like there's a preponderance of one of the four elements in each of the three different kinds of beings they consist of ordinary elemental components However, there seems to be something in the way they are constituted that changes the qualities of these objects. Evagoras um, was very interested in the categories for a good reason. And he really thought that there was something different going on in this world vis-a-vis quality and number. And the KG is, devoted to trying to tease out the answer or to provide insights into this universe to make you work really hard at understanding what he's trying to do. Um, This world is apparently one of a number of worlds. There is a succession of worlds, and he suggests that as we live each life, that we then in the next world, go into uh, a new state for uh, uh, that that's more appropriate to what we're doing. So there's there's descents and there's ascents. People can become or demons can become worse than demons, and it, there are categories of beings that Evagri says are worse than demons. Wow! And there are things that are, are more angelic, and we do not know how. Long this will go on, but Evagrius says there will be a time when the worlds will come to an end and there will be a restoration. Well, he actually, uh, restoration, you would think that he's talking about the apocatastasis. And it's worth pointing out here that unlike his contemporaries, Evagrius studiously seems to avoid the word apocatastasis. That is interesting. He seems to have the underlying doctrine, that is, a restoration of what exists within a unity and in his um very famous letter so-called letter to melania another very large letter that um is really important but survives only in syriac he he likens the return of all things to um the waters of the river flowing into the ocean and that's what we're like are the the drops in 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 the ocean and we become basically God, but he seems to avoid this. Unlike, say, his contemporary Demas the Blind or or Gregory of Nyssa, who had no problem using apokatastasis wherever. And that's, I think, because Evagrius put a lot of stock in the term catastasis, the, the the positive form of the word. That is, he's really interested in the condition or the state that things are in, and for him, everything is always in a state. And he never says it, but I, I have a feeling that he he avoids the word because he, he doesn't believe that there is a place at which we will be without a state, uh, that we're always in some catastasis or another, and the final catastasis is the one where we're united with God and we return to that original noetic unity with him.
0: Wow. That reminds me, I don't know if there's a connection, but it reminds me of Origen's theory of embodiment, that while souls are sort of, in theory, separable in incorporeal beings, they always have to have a body in practice. And that's part of why we have a resurrection body, because you just can't have souls without bodies. So God supplies the sort of substrate for souls. And so higher and higher forms of body going all
1: the way up the scale. Yep. Yep. That's, that's, that's very, very much in uh, comportment. We, we know that Evagoras read a lot of Origen. He also read Clement of Alexandria. Now we that is interesting. We don't know that he ever quotes them, but he, they are two of many authors that Evagoras deals with. He will often present something as a quotation, but he won't say what it is. We, we know that he read voraciously across the board of both philosophers and and previous writers. And he seems to have borrowed a lot from contemporaries, such as uh, Didymus, we have actually got places where he verbatim preserves uh Didymus's scolia without crediting Didymus on on the points, but um but he, he is his own person. He he's not uh, he he's got his own ideas on how all of this fits together somehow.
0: That's fascinating to me because correct me if I'm wrong but Jerome. So Jerome uh Saint Jerome to some is a Latin uh, language author, but ex- highly educated Helene, you might call uh, him, in the fourth century. But hes is he living in Rome? I think he's living in Rome. Or he's living in the Western Empire somewhere. Uh, he takes Evagoras to task. So this is the guy who wrote the, the Vulgate translation of the Bible, incidentally. If you're reading your Latin Catholic Bible, it's from this guy, Jerome. He's a uh, very orthodox, in retrospect, guy. And he doesn't like Lots of things about Evagrius, but one of the things he doesn't like about him is something along the lines of he sort of speculates but isn't delivering dogma. He's just kind of thinking through stuff, and he attacks Evagrius for this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Does this
1: ring a bell? I do, yeah. Jerome mentions Evagrius three times, and he doesn't really pinpoint him exactly other than just to associate him with other other people that he doesn't like. Um for example, he in in one area in the commentary on on, on um, Jeremiah, Jerome calls him a grunter and associates him with Jovinian, but he doesn't really get into anything specific on Evagrius. Um, mo- most of Jerome's ammunition for specifics is spent on Origin specifically, and there have been different reasonable attempts to make sense of this. Some people say, well, uh, Vagrius was just so widely regarded that he, Jerome couldn't uh, attack him so directly. Others say, well, maybe because he just didn't really merit that kind of attention from Jerome. We're, we're not clear on why.
0: Maybe Jerome was taking that kind of heresiological approach to these things and seeing origin as the origin haha, of <laughs> th- this error. That's spreading out into the future, right? And so you don't need to talk about the individual originists as much as you need to attack the heresiarch himself, origin. Even if we're not going to call him a heretic because that's too strong, we're going to say he's in error on points A through Z. But maybe it's a case of that, right? He's like, never mind Evagrius; he's just an origin an origin follower. But it's origin we need to put the lid on. Does that? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my right. off the cuff the, theory. the ideas
1: of, thereof. Yeah.
0: But the idea, so, what what intrigues me in his attack is that he's attacking the fact that Evagrius is willing to do what's been called research theology or exploratory theology, metaphysics, kind of playing with ideas, maybe coming up with a system. He's not saying this is Christian dogma. He's not saying this is something you have to believe. It's in your credo or whatever. And it's for the Gnostics, right? It's for the the Christians who have already achieved a certain spiritual level. And he's very good about that, right? He's, he doesn't mix his Gnostic stuff with his stuff for the the more basic Christians. So it's like- true. And he's, he's saying like, you know, you shouldn't be reading this,
1: this metaphysical speculation stuff unless you're ready for it, right? Yeah, and I should, I should actually backtrack a bit. I, I overstated my position. Uh, Jerome in letter 133 actually does have a whole paragraph on Evagrius uh, oh. that he, he associates him with Basilides. And he, he uh, basically has a number of things to, to castigate him on, although he's light on the details for which he should be condemned. He's just basically saying that he's he's another originist and that he's been condemned along with Ammonius, Eusebius, Euthemius, Horus, Isido- and Isidorus, uh, the four tall brothers.
0: Whoa. And how does Basilides fit into that? Or is it just a, a heretical name to conjure with, like,
1: you know? It's, yeah, it's just a name. That, that's why, you know, he's light on specifics. How, how would you connect uh, Evagris with facilities? I, I'm not too certain. I, I think it would be easier to try to associate him, say, with the Valentinians than Basilides right. myself. Right. So, getting back to what you're saying about this
0: incredible worldview he has, right, that he's laying out in the Kevalaya. which I guess he's not laying out, again, he's not laying it out systematically. He's laying it out in this incredibly beautiful, way in these short little bite-sized chunks that you have to read through and maybe maybe this is his um scholiast's mind at work you know connect this one to the one that was in the previous chapter and then connect in making jumping back and forth and reconnecting and finding links between concepts expressed here and there and then putting together a picture oh, yeah in this sort of it, and way he,
1: he meant the reader to work hard on this um one of the unique features of the KG relative to Evagris' other writings is that chapters that seem to belong to each other are usually separated by at least one Cephalia. So he may talk about primary beings in one Cephalion, and then the next one, it's it's an exegesis of scripture, and then he'll come back in the very next one to say something that resonates with the one that went up ahead of time. And sometimes, you know, the, the jump is even further. He, he really wanted his readers to spend a lot of careful, deliberative time on this text, rereading it, jumping back and forth and trying to figure it out because he wasn't going to give you the answers. He was going to tease you with, well, maybe, uh, Let me give an example uh, that also opens up his interest in the world of numbers. In 1, 15, when the four is annulled, the five is also annulled. But when the five is annulled, the four is not also annulled. And then at the very next Cephalion, he says, that which has been separated from the five is not separated from the four but that which has been separated from the four is released also from the five. Now, a scholiast or, or some scribe actually added a comment to this saying, ah, pretty much, ah, I know what this is. The four is talking about the, the, the four elements and the five is the five senses. And oh. you go, okay, great. We've got that figured out. But once you plug those items into the kephalion, you realize you've just started scratching the surface because you then need to ask, what does it mean when you're talking about the annihilation, the the annihilation of of the four elements, and what would it mean for the five senses to be annulled? So um, you, you think that you understand something, and you open the door, and you realize, oh. Uh, there's actually a few more doors behind the door I just opened, if you are paying attention. If you're not paying attention, then you just leave and go find something else to read. Yeah, uh, But then you're not really reading Evagris. Uh,
0: quite Gospel of Thomas-ish in its yeah. sort of in- initial opacity and obvious mi- intentional mystification. But then... When you start to, if you decide, okay, this is actually important, I'm going to really think about this thing, you start to dive into the hermeneutic depths, and then it all becomes self-referentially interesting, and the whole book is talking to itself in different ways. I've read somewhere that this book owes something to Plotinus. And from what you're saying, I can certainly see things that seem quite Plotinian, but I wonder, do they not just owe more to Origen and then, you know... The Gregories and, the, and the, all these uh, Christian intellectuals that he's talking to, and as well as his own perhaps intuitions and um, hermetic work. What do you think about this?
1: Yeah, it's, I'd say yes to all the above. We in, in our index, we got a list of all of the allusions to that. I think that the most obvious allusions to other works, Plotinus features a few times in there. I'd say a little bit more Porphyry than than Plotinus. interesting. In fact, there is one place where we, we think there, there may be a rejiggering of some of Porphyry's phraseology on a particular aspect. There's no smoking gun, uh, on either author or actually any of, any of the other people that resonate through the KG, but you can see them all and you get a feel for them all. Philo makes his appearance in, um, in the Practicos, for example, when Evagoras talks about the Ophiomachos, the, the snake fighter, and he he uh, without crediting or blaming Philo, takes a different position on what that means. What does that mean? Um, Philo regards continents as as the uh, as the snake fighter. Got it. But Evagoras treats it as as love. And interestingly, in that very same passage, he ascribes it to Moses, who wrote on, in his writings on nature symbolically, as if he had written a treatise on nature.
0: <laughs> I love that. Moses, the philosopher.
1: Moses also did a
0: bit of snake fighting, right? Not Moses, but Aaron. <laughs> yes, he did. He, uh, they did the old uh, converting the sticks into snakes, and their snakes won. This is, of course, obviously ripe for an esoteric reading to a Christian audience. If, if for no other reason than you have to um, account for the fact that the the pharaohs' uh, sorcerers seem to be quite powerful, and how is that even possible theologically? But so it, it seems to me that there's an, a really strong echo of something we find in Clement here, in the in the general worldview, the general idea that there are layers upon layers upon layers of entities, intelligent entities. In the world. Clement doesn't really get into demons very much, but humans, and then above us, angels, and then above them, higher angels, and higher and higher and higher angelic levels, leading up to the Protoktists, and then the Logos himself, who is the noetic world. And when you die, you know, Clement was writing in an era when orthodoxy wasn't even a thing yet, but this is really not orthodox. Uh, when you die, if you've done well, you're going to get promoted, this seems to be Clement's teaching. Of course, it's esoteric and it's it's expressed kind of obliquely and stuff, but this seems to be what he's saying. You're going to be angelified. And we have, you know, canonical things in the Gospels about when you die, you become like an angel. So that you can justify that, no problem, from the Gospels. And then if, you're, if you do your job as an angel of grade one, well, eventually you will be angelified up to grade two and so on and so forth. And it seems to me that the multiple worlds the journey back to God, having fallen down to the bodies we're in now, that Evagrius is talking about is working in yeah. something like a Clementine paradigm,
1: right? Yeah, I, I would say definitely that's that's the paradigm that Evagrius has used. It's always unclear, you know, whether he's getting it from Clement or from Origen or from Didymus, who is the other factor X in all of this, because Didymus's works have not really been studied to the the depth that they need to be, and especially the esoteric side of of Didymus. A lot of good work has been done on Didymus's pedagogy and his mm-hmm. engagement with his students, but very little on the more esoteric side of his his works.
0: So I'm tempted, as a reader, to think of something, maybe something that's started by Philo, really, of a an Abrahamic. Tradition. So Philo to Clement to Origen to Evagrius. And this is, these, all these connections are problematic. And, you know, there's this sort of uh, chain of transmission of the leadership of the church in Alexandria that Eusebius gives us that goes Clement to Origen, but we don't actually know that that really was in any way institutionalized or they, you know, anything like that. But there seems to be this Abrahamic tradition of taking something like a Platonist universe where the sacred timeline isn't so much creation duration followed by end times well it is that but it also has this verticality this vertical aspect where souls are moving up towards god and there's this kind of there having been a fall of some kind into matter into the the world we're in there's this this coordinated flowing back of mm-hmm. all things toward God. And it might be an infinite flowing back. It might never quite reach God, because God is infinite, and that's perfectly possible, right? And you can see that in Philo, circumspectly and to some degree, trying to sort of correct for not trying to read Clement or Origin back into Philo. But still, there, all of that is there in Philo. It's definitely there in Clement, and he is learning from his the elders, as he calls them, the people who are instructing him orally that he doesn't really name, Jewish Christian teachers of some kind from the Alexandrian milieu. Same thing with Origen. He's reading, but he's also learning from elders. And now we have Evagrius. And and all of this stuff can be got from the scriptures, right? It's not like it's unconnected to the scriptures, but it's certainly not explicit in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So you need a kind of let's call it extended Platonist appreciation for scriptural reading, scriptural hermeneutics, to arrive at this way of seeing the world. And it's an absolutely fascinating, can we call it a tradition? I think we can. It seems like we can. We don't know all the links in the chain, but it's very clear that this is happening in the Eastern Empire, especially around Alexandria, but um, up into the Near East as well, in the monasteries and so on. There seems to be this kind of Tradition. What do you think of this, and what do we want to call this tradition that I've just sort of tried to outline?
1: I'm inclined to go back even further in into say the Greek intellectual tradition, where uh, from our our earliest Greek thinkers, systematic thinkers, attempted to provide some kind of comprehensive answer to the life, the universe, and everything. We call those guts and toes today, but in antiquity. At least in the Greek tradition, no philosopher was worth their salt if they did not try to connect disparate parts of the universe together somehow. So, with Aristotle, he doesn't just stick with his biological observations. You know, he's also trying to explain ethics and metaphysics. And he's not the only one. Plato's doing that. Uh, Heraclitus is doing that. Anax- Anaximenes, uh, Parmenides. And so, when you see Philo appearing all of a sudden, you know that he's actually the representative of some kind of Jewish tradition that had started long before in the Ptolemaic period. We know that because Philo quotes from from his predecessors, or Clement quotes from Philo's predecessors, who were trying to do... uh, in their tradition what the greeks were doing in theirs that is they were trying to provide some kind of explanatory tale or everything in the universe but that was woven into scripture or they tried to weave it into scripture if if you like and so this tradition i guess you could call it Platonist, but you could also call it aristotelian if you want to be perverse and and you know think of of it as being comparable. And in fact, for somebody like Evagrius, it may be surprising to, to know that there is far more explicit quotation of or verbatim use of Aristotle than there is of Plato.
0: That is interesting. Because, and it's a, it's a sign of things to come in Christianity, right?
1: Yeah. And well, the sign of the things that were actually, Um it, there, there's evidence that the second wave of Arianism, the, say the late, late fourth century Arianism, attempted to marshal Aristotle's logical apparatus as a way to try, try to take the, the discussion to a next new level. And the whole thing about eunomius and names is based upon this Aristotelian apparatus. And his opponents bit and they they took it too you know so basil and gregory and other pro Nicene authors also adopted the kind of intellectual apparatus that that aristotle provided with the syllogism with the approach to categories to try to broker the the these discussions and and deal with it so evagrius is just reflecting a trend that's already there and we, we know from if you look at Socrates explanation of what happened after the Council of Constantinople so there that's there Socrates the the,
0: sorry to interrupt that Socrates the church historian, the late antique church historian not Socrates the other Socrates listeners might have heard of
1: That's right, not not the suicidal Socrates who has these very interesting accounts of what was happening in the 380s in Constantinople and there there were a number of factions that were using Aristotle or Aristotelian like logic in their debates Evagrius's um has maybe about 10 kefalia that are framed as formal syllogisms Evagrius is very keen on making sure that when he was making a point there there was intellectual heft to what he was what he was trying to say So somebody like Evagrius somebody like Clement Origen they are attempting to interpret scripture through a, a gut or a toe approach by importing a kind of metaphysics because scripture doesn't have a metaphysics to begin with. You have to bring it in. And, and so this is a, an interpretive tradition that, that tries to make sense of everything in the universe in concert with, with scripture, whether you want to call that Platonist or Aristotelian or something else I, I think that we're you're just dealing with with naming it at at that point, and really it's the underlying thing that I think we're concerned about here. That is the, this esoteric tradition. Yeah. Um, there are there Christian exegetes who aren't that? You know, who who is not like that? Well, it's the people, I guess, who are reluctant to go beyond what Scripture actually says, and they're they're not interested in explaining why we have four elements or how they're constituted with each other, or not interested in explaining the origin of the soul. And so they are, I suppose, not making the attempt to solve all the world's big problems.
0: But Evagrius and his ilk are. Yeah. Thank you for that take on this. I think that's a really good way to think about this tradition. If we just look at its dynamics, how it kind of functions, it is this kind of esoteric stream, but coming from. I think you, you raise a really good point. Coming from a very ambitious kind of questing approach to explaining stuff, what else is esoteric about the Kefalanoska? So you've talked already about how there's, there's a two-level approach to Christians. There's the praktikoi and then the gnostikoi, like in Clement. And the gnostikoi are the ones who know, the, the ones who maybe are suitable for this kind of speculative theological, metaphysical stuff. Although, especially with someone as practice and and uh, asceticism-oriented as Evagrius, maybe we don't want to think of this as a purely theoretical activity, but as some kind of participatory metaphysics, a kind of, um, you know, this is what you're doing when you're purifying yourself from sins and stuff. You're getting, you're moving towards God, right? So in that sense, the Gnostic stuff is going to be the more esoteric stuff, and it seems to me that it, it's not a stretch, and I wonder what you think of this to to see the way he chose to write the Kevalaya in this very this way that makes you do the work, right the same way Plato sometimes writes stuff, uh, which is why almost immediately people started accusing Plato of being an esoteric writer because he writes in these these little weird riddles and puzzle mathematical puzzles where he doesn't give you all the all that you need to solve it, so you have to kind of fill in the gaps. so he's writing in this difficult way, which strikes me as. Being most easily interpreted as a form of esoteric public writing, like I'm writing this, but I'm not going to present it in a way that anyone can really casually get what i'm saying you ha- you're going to have to work for it, which is a form of uh, public esotericism right Would, do you go are you with me so far? Does this seem like a sensible reading?
1: yeah, so far, it's so good. The practicos is all about you know how to discipline the body and and train it, and you see streaks of his metaphysics either through some of the terms he uses, but he isn't explicit about it. Um, the Cephalia Gnostica is somewhat of a different animal in that there isn't a whole lot about what you're supposed to do with this knowledge. It's actually quite theoretical uh, to introduce one of Vagris' favorite words, theoria, which is normally translated as contemplation. Yeah. But I, I'd like to argue that a better translation of this word is observation. Vagris okay. is very interested in the, the theo Behind theoria and what the rational being sees spiritually, there's a, a tradition in, that goes all the way back to origin of the uh, spiritual senses and this yeah. notion that every rational being has a corresponding faculty of uh, faculty of sense, spiritual sense, corresponding to the physical sense. And so, Evagrius has this view that he's he's adopted and inherited from origin of of the spiritual site and the KG is just full of this. Some people will say, okay, well, yeah, he meant to have you read that in concert with the practicos. And actually as you learn, you then inform your discipline. And yeah, I can credit that. I mean, I find find that plausible on one level. However, on another, I think that there may be more to the story I will be arguing in a forthcoming article that the Cephalae Gnostica was written before the other two parts ever were. And that he wrote the Cephalae Gnostica in the 370s when he was with Gregory of Nazianzus in Constantinople. And it's only when he moved to Egypt as a monk that he thought of a way to repackage this as something for monks to do. And we shouldn't actually be reading the Cephalia Gnostica as something for monks. It it shouldn't be read as a monastic text. It should be read as a Christian intellectual text that later gets reframed as a monastic one. Thinking of it that way, I think, changes our options for uh, what what we think he meant us to do with the Cephalia Gnostica, because he wrote it ostensibly for anyone who has the intellectual or theoretical apparatus to to work out the problems. And there's no guide actually that in that case we, we don't know exactly what he meant <laughs> in its original writing, what he meant for us to do with it. And in fact, you know, having read the text multiple times in preparation for the OEP volume, I'm hard pressed to give an explanation for the KG or, or summarize it. You know I, I, I encourage readers uh listeners to to just dive into it and and get pulled into knots as i have and my fellow fellow uh translators have uh, because it, it it defies it defies any kind of epitome because it it is a series of epitomes of insights a into the world
0: amen I also encourage everyone to do that. I look very much forward to the publication of your translation, which will make this potent source of extremely difficult to understand esoteric writing available in in an easy one-stop shop. So it can baffle even more people in the English-speaking world than it's already baffled. People talk a lot about the Christian mystical tradition. And I think with Evagrius, it's time for the podcast to start. To, well, with the Cappadocians, really. It's time for the podcast to start addressing this um, this material, even if we don't want to talk about mysticism. Um, not that I have a problem with mysticism. It's just you have to define what you mean by it. Otherwise, it means so many different things to different people that it, you're not necessarily talking about the same thing. But what is there in this work that... Has led so many commentators to describe it as a work of Christian mysticism.
1: I would say the the, the terse, paradoxical phraseology of of these chapters, coupled with adumbrations around describing God, uh, uh, ap- apophatic approaches to God that that guide people to to do this. Because as a good Cappadocian, uh, Evagrius will not say what God is because he agrees with Gregory of Nazianzus, you, you shouldn't be talking about God anyway. And this is in, in, in Gregory's theological orations where he, he basically tells his opponents to shut up and stop talking about God and start talking about the created world instead. Evagrius does, the, he basically takes his master's advice, and, and so he provides insightful streaks into Scripture, into the nature of God, or... Or God's appearance to us, the, the through through very um, perplexing statements that um, we're supposed to to wrestle with, and so yeah, it's it, it's classic. Well, for lack of a better word in this context, mysticism, spirituality, but it, it's it's really the aritos, the the unspeakable nature of God that that uh, is that pervades the whole work, and yet an attempt to try to see it, because we, that, that's one of the insights that Evagoras has, is that we are returning to some kind of unity, and we must contemplate that unity. We must observe it and, and move toward it. How do we do it when we can't describe it? It's very difficult to do. So apophatism
0: is getting up ahead of steam in the Christian tradition in the 4th century.
1: Uh, yeah, and it had a head of steam yeah. um, already, but when Evagrius came uh, along, he, he wasn't making anything up on, on that front.
0: No, but he's he's a, an exemplar of it, huh? So we have an apophatic God. So this, the text is circling around the unsayable God, telling you at length and in, in baffling ways that it cannot tell you what it's talking about. Perhaps drawing you in to use your spiritual senses to get a more direct perception of this unspeakable non thing than he can tell you about, but forever abstaining from making the statement of what it is. And yet it's the most it's the only thing that really matters, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I think this is a perfect stopping point, right?
1: End on the apophatic. Yeah. And I bid you to be like the 60 Cephalia that are missing from the Cephalia Gnostica. You mean stay esoteric? <laughs>